And I remember I walked into a store one time to try to sell my laptop envelopes, and they said, "Yeah, these are cute, but why don't you make them a little smaller and just make them into handbags?" And I was like, "Great idea! I'll be back in two days." <laughs> so I went home and made、um, smaller versions and brought them back and sold them there. Hey everyone, we're here on the Founder Hour podcast with our guest Claire Vivier. Claire, we're so glad to be here at your offices, and we're excited for the conversation that we're going to have about you know your upbringing and kind of a few relevant topics. You know, whether it's fashion or mental health or being a woman in in the industry.、Uh, so, thank you so much for taking time to be with us. Thank you for coming. So, I, I want to kick it off kind of just casually. I was watching your Instagram stories earlier. And I saw that you were in San Francisco today.、Um, what was going on up there? I was up. Well, we have a store up there. That was our, that's our seventh store.、Mm-hmm. We opened it last June, so a year ago. And、um, we quite often have events at our stores. And last night was an event at our San Francisco store. It was an event with a blogger called the Glitter Guide, Taylor Sterling of the Glitter、mm-hmm. Guide.、Mm-hmm. She was celebrating her seventh anniversary. Seventh anniversary, seventh store. Yeah,、okay. yeah, seven, seven.、Um, it made sense. She's been a great supporter of the line for the past seven years,、mm-hmm. and、um, she's up in the Bay Area. It just we have a lot of the same. She has the same readers as our customers. It just made sense to have an event together, and it was really fun. Is this the first podcast you've ever been on? Second, I believe. Second, okay. Yes, it's good enough. I feel like top、yes. three is good. Yes, top three is good. Yes, but I listen to Posket. Podcasts all the time. Awesome. Which one's your favorite?、Um, I love how I built this. Love it.、Taylor. And I love.、Um, definitely drew a lot of inspiration from. Yeah, I、Guy、love Pod Save America. Pod Save America, and the Daily, which is New York Times Daily podcast.、Um, a fun one that I've been listening to lately. It's really lighthearted. Is.、Um, In the limelight, it's Vanity Fair's、hmm. pop culture. Is that a new one? Is that a new one? I thought perhaps was, in the last、uh, year. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a very they have a Kevin Hart episode. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they do. Awesome. Well, why don't we jump in?、Um, so, Claire, did you grow up in LA? I didn't. I grew up in Minnesota. I grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota. Last of six kids,、um, we actually moved there from Indiana when I was two. My father at the time was a professor at the University of Minnesota,、mm-hmm. and he, we moved up for his job. What did he teach? He taught. He went up to be the chair of the Chicano Studies Department,、wow. and、uh, he was teaching law and Chicano Studies. And I know that you kind of you have you're also of Latin background. Is that correct? Yeah, my father's Mexican. Okay, he's、um, he's first generation American, so I'm. Obviously, second generation. <laughs>、um, yeah. And then ended up met- marrying a French guy. Yes, and then I went to live. I met my husband when I was twenty-four years old and living in France. Very cool. Very cool. I want. I want to get into that because I'm interested to see, you know, what your life was like in France.、Um, when did you first come out to LA? In two thousand one, we moved here from the Bay Area、mm-hmm. from. From France, I had gone to school in San Francisco. So after I finished college, I moved to Paris,、mm-hmm. and I stayed for a year. And then we went 
from that, I met my husband. We went back to the Bay Area mm-hmm. and lived there for a few years and then moved down here in 2001. Did you always know that you want to be involved in fashion or, you know, is it something that you just stumbled upon, you know, after you came out here? I did. Well, to be clear, I always wanted to work in fashion, but Mm -hmm. I didn't know in what capacity that would be. Um, Didn't think that I wanted to be a fashion designer. So I thought maybe I would be a fashion journalist because I liked writing Mm -hmm. and I liked the industry so much that... That was kind of going to be my um, entry into the industry. but Is that what you studied in college? Was it journalism? I studied English. Okay. And so um, I guess when you – why did you move to Paris after graduating college? Was that to, for like a job or was it just to explore the world or – It was to ex- really to explore the world. I, I had – I think I had an attraction to these cosmopolitan cities and really um, – I had so I was the, at the time in San Francisco, and I had lived in New York for a summer to go live with a boyfriend for a while, and feel like I got New York kind of out of my system just by living there mm-hmm. for four months with a boyfriend, and I loved it, and I still love New York, but um, didn't feel like I wanted to go back and live there. But mm-hmm. Paris really piqued my interest just because it was such a cosmopolitan, beautiful city. I mean, seemingly beautiful. I'd never visited it. Mm-hmm. Um, and also because it's relation to the fashion industry, I, I knew that I wanted to go just see the women and see, be around the fashion there. I didn't know if I would find work in the fashion industry Mm -hmm. while I was there. Um, and it turned out I didn't, I worked, um, I was not legal, so I didn't have working papers. So it's, Mm -hmm. I was working at a cafe being paid under the table and then I found an internship at a documentary film production company. What was it like being, you know, in another country with, you know, really no connections and no, really no connection to the, to the land? Well, I think I went when I was 24 and I think 24 is a great age to do mm-hmm. something like that because you're just fearless enough to do something like that and you don't have the attachments that you might have a little bit later in life. Um, I really, I really felt fearless. And it's funny because now when I talk to people and they talk about living in another country, they're like, Oh, I could never do that. Mm -hmm. They feel a little bit intimidated to do it. And honestly, I don't know that I would want to do it. Go live in a foreign land where I don't speak the language and I don't Mm -hmm. know anyone. Mm -hmm. I don't know how I did it. I think at the time I had a French boyfriend, he was half French. And so I kind of got, I worked at a really nice restaurant in San Francisco where we were exposed to French wines and French cuisine. And Sounds incredible. And so I think that kind of turned my interest a little Mm -hmm. bit towards like, France sounds cool. Paris sounds like it would be an amazing thing to do. Mm -hmm. And I knew that once you finish college, you have just a little bit of time before you have to really start thinking about what you're going to do. So Figuring out like, you know, what am I going to do with my life? Yeah. Yeah. And I felt it was kind of an escape. It was kind of like this was I'm buying some time by by doing this. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I knew that I wanted to go explore the world. So I'm happy I did that. So, um, you said that you moved from France back to San Francisco. Is that right? I did, yes. Um, and was that what were you doing in San Francisco after after France? 
So I came back from France after living there for a year with, and I came with my new French boyfriend. <laughs> and uh, this is another French boyfriend. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. The previous one was only half French. He was Got a French American guy. That's not real French. It, yeah, it was just a test of waters. <laughs> yeah, uh, he just kind of turned me French. on to like French cinema and things, <laughs> and then in the French language, I kind of was more interested in it. Um, so the French boyfriend, who is now my husband, his. His name is Thierry. Um, we came back together. He was a journal. He is a journalist for French television. So, for a while, I worked with him producing stories for television. For a while, I I just was kind of working all over the place. I worked waiting tables at a French restaurant in Berkeley. I helped him produce stories. I um, worked with a production company as a production assistant and a coordinator. I, um, one job that I really liked, and I think I learned a lot of things that were applicable to now running this company is, uh, prop styling with, a hmm. with, um, a production company. That's going to be pretty fun. Yeah. And I learned a lot because we, we had both the art director that I worked under and the photographers that I worked with and the access that we had just by the quality of the projects we were working on were really all great we had wonderful access to beautiful products and then the photographers really taught me how to create a beautiful shot and what it what it meant to create desire in an image and I really hadn't thought of that before so that was very applicable when I later started my own blog and started to think about how am why is anyone going to buy this product why is anyone going to buy my bag so they can go to you know, Urban Outfitters, or they can go to Prada, or they can go to Barney's, you know, mm -hmm. what's going to make anyone um, follow this line? And I knew that the, it had to have um, an image behind it. And mm -hmm. to do that, I needed beautiful image, imagery. What did you learn most about storytelling um, at the time that you were, you know, living in France and then came to San Francisco during this early kind of stages before you launched, you know, Claire V and, you know, all the other products you worked on, what's something you learned about storytelling? Well, I think when I return, something very important to storytelling and to the creation of, of this brand was when I came back from France, I, it was really the beginning of blogs, mm -hmm. very early day of blogs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I followed a few of them and I followed, and at the time the blogs were just diaries basically online. Was it like a Tumblr or Blogspot or one of those? Probably they were Blogspot. Yeah, yeah. I think it was before Tumblr for mm -hmm. sure. Um, and I followed a young woman who lived in Paris after I moved back from Paris. And I followed her blog. I read it every day and looked for new entries every day. She didn't necessarily write every day, but I always checked it. And I thought it was, it was like a sitcom for me. It was like just keeping up with someone's life. And mm -hmm. she did interesting things. She kind of worked in the fashion industry and just by, just by the fact that she lived in Paris was interesting to me. Um, and what I, gleaned from that was that people are interested in other people's lives. And so when I started my own brand and needed to figure out how I was going to market it, I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to market it with a blog. I'm just mm -hmm. going to start telling my story. And 
I bet there are going to be some people who are interested in my story just just like I was interested in her story. I live in Los Angeles. It's a pretty desirable place to live that not everyone gets to live here or even visit here. You know, yeah. it's pretty exotic if you're just watching it on TV. You almost I, take it for I, granted sometimes. It's oh, like, always, yeah, yeah. People are always like from the outside looking like, oh, LA is so glamorous and all this and that. But when you show them like your real life, like it, it might be more glamorous than other areas, but at the same time, it's like it's a fast city to live in and there's a lot of, yeah. you know, challenging yeah. and I think parts too. It just, I realized that people were probably going to be interested in it somewhat. Mm-hmm. I ha- I lived in Los Angeles. I was... Married to a French man, I traveled off into France. I, I knew how to speak French. Mm-hmm. I had a young son, and I was interested in fashion. So I was, I knew that I could use these things to illustrate w- me starting this brand. And so, what year was this around? Um, two thousand six. So from two thousand one to two thousand six. Were you involved still in the fashion industry or were you no, doing the culinary um, kind of stuff in uh, San Francisco? Oh, the waiting tables thing? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> culinary is a nice way of putting it. I was like, let me make it sound a little bit more professional. Yeah, yeah, yeah waiting tables. <laughs> um, I waited tables for many years, which I, I think is also a great preparation for entrepreneurs. I think you. I think the so. fact that we have to... I was a good waiter and I. you, you have to keep a lot of it's stuff tough. in your head yeah. and be very good at multitasking while, while remaining cool. I feel like more than that also you... And I wish I did it. Um, I, maybe, maybe I still can. Um, right. But I, you, the experience that you get talking to different people, you know, kind of hearing about their experiences or just the way they interact with one another or with you is I think so essential in business because you need to know your people, you need to know your audience, you know who are your buyers. And I think waiting tables, honestly, is a great preparation for that. Yeah, it's a very social en- endeavor for sure. And I guess if I hadn't been waiting tables at Universal Cafe in San Francisco, mm-hmm. I never would have met my husband because, well, for many reasons, I probably wouldn't have gone to France. But I also met my husband through a, cu- a former customer at Universal. Really? And, oh. you know, I moved to France. I didn't know anyone. But I had numbers, phone numbers, and it was before the internet, so mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. email. So um, I had numbers of friends of friends, and those were the people that I called. How did you meet him? I met him at a dinner. There was a customer there was a, a couple that used to come into Universal Cafe, and mm-hmm. one day the guy came in alone, and I said, "Where's your friend?" And he said, "She moved. She moved. She moved to Paris." And I was like, "Oh, cool." And then I just kind of filed that in the back of my brain. And then one day when I decided to move to Paris, and I saw that guy, I was like, "You know, I'm moving to Paris. Can I get her number?" And so he gave me her number, and her name's Carrie Lieb. And I called her up, and we became great friends in Paris. She was my only American friend in Paris. And um, Carrie, very early on, invited me to a dinner party where I met my husband. Very cool. So it's 2006 and you're you're just kind of you're launching your blog and you're getting into designing. Were you designing like, was it your own brand or company or was it, were you doing like, were you working somewhere else or working on other No, projects? I started doing it myself. Well, I just started Sewing my own bags. I, for, I knew how to sew. I learned how to sew in grade school. Um, and I started making laptop bags because there were no cute laptop bags. And it was a relatively easy thing to make. Mm-hmm. But I really wanted, I really 
believed that there was a hole in the market. So I really did a lot of research on what kind of foam to use. And the tricky thing was that there were so many different sizes of laptops. So that really was a bummer. <laughs> yeah. I really got was that really around the time up. when like MacBooks were like becoming a yeah, thing? like Mac the MacBooks Pros. were so cute. No, they were. It was really early on. The white on, ones, right? Like, like the thick. Mic- there were the MacBooks. white ones, but before that, remember there was like the blueberry one. Oh yeah, the, I, I yes. had that blueberry one, and. I had the first Apple, when I moved to Paris, I brought a laptop with me, which was like a brick of a gray, (laughs) you know, I think I still have it. I would love to fire that up one day and see if it still works. Of course, you can't connect to the internet or anything with it. It's basically a typing machine. Um, But I brought that with me to keep a journal while I was in France. Um, Do you still have that journal? Well, I still have the computer, so I'm sure it's. I'm sure it would somewhere on the hard drive. Yeah, that'd be interesting to look back at. Yeah, so you're making laptop bags. What's, yeah, the, so what's making, the goal with that? So I was making laptop bags, and friends of mine wanted them, and I thought, why are there no cute laptop bags? They're, Apple is doing so much work to try to make laptops so cute. Why don't we have cute bags to put them in? And at the time, there was really not much. There was really kind of for the corporate woman, or there was tons of stuff for guys Mm -hmm. and um so i just believed that there was this market to do it i started making them and um and was this like the claire v brand or was it at the time it was called vivier okay so i i still have like all of the (laughs) labels of the renditions of this brand that Mm -hmm. it's gone through at the time i called it just vivier and um at some point I don't remember. Then I changed it to Claire Vivier just to use my entire lane. I think someone told me, use your entire name because you won't get any trouble if you're using your entire name. So Some like intellectual property yeah. issues, yeah. Yeah, because that is actually mm-hmm, you. Mm-hmm. So that's when mm-hmm. I, at some point, I started was using there, Was there anyone in the world with the same name that you ever like ran into any issues with ahead of time? Or? Yeah, well, a little bit later. So in 2013, I was... Um, sued by Roger Vivier Company, which is in France and it's owned by the Todd's Group in Italy. Mm. And they sued me, um, what is it called when you... Copyright infringement. He's the lawyer. (laughs) Are you a lawyer? I'm studying to be a lawyer, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, But confusion, brand confusion. I'm not sure what it's called. Mm -hmm. Um, Even if it's like overseas, like a different country? Well, so... Let me start over. In 2013, Roger... Well, you, before you go... Sorry to cut you off, but before you go there, so you launched your first store no, in 2012? Ahead. Yes. Okay. And that was in Silver Lake? Yes. Why did you choose Silver Lake? Oh, because I live in Silver Lake. Okay, good, good. I was wondering, I was like, no one starts businesses next to my... I live in Glendale, so I was like, no one starts any new companies next to my hometown. Yeah. But I'm glad, yeah, glad to see that. Yeah, I live in Silver Lake. I started... Um, I opened my first store in 2011 with... Okay. With my neighbor at the t- my uh, actual residential mm-hmm, neighbor, mm-hmm. her name is Catherine Bentley, and she's a jeweler. And she and I were both running our businesses out of our homes. Mm-hmm. And one day, we just saw each other on the street and started chatting and said, "I'm looking for a studio. We got to get this. I got to get this business out of my house. It's mm-hmm. kind of." And when you say you were running it out of your home, was it like an online business at the time, or was it like actually physically selling it out of your home? Um, just online and shipping to wholesale accounts at the time. Gotcha. Um, so Catherine and I were like, hey, well, let's, if we see a space, let's maybe get a space together. Mm-hmm. So we found a space in the neighborhood on Mitchell Terena 
um, that was a storefront. Mm-hmm. And um, we decided that we were going to put our businesses in the back of the storefront and just have a few hundred square feet up the front of the windows to ha- to sell our goods. Mm-hmm. And it became clear very quickly that this was a great idea. The both of our lines did really well in this very small amount of space. So when the corner space became available, which was two doors down, I jumped on it, and that became our first real store, the first Claire Vivier store. And at the time, you were still doing the cute laptop bags, or was it handbags? And By then, it was a full collection. I'm curious how, how it evolved like from in those six years from like doing the laptop bags to like handbags and yeah. accessories. Sorry, we've kind of jumped ahead oh, very fine, quickly. Yeah. Um, from 2006, when I started with laptops, um, well, it just kind of grew very organically. When I had the laptop bags, then I needed a tote to put the laptop in. So then I started making totes, and I was making everything out of canvas because I didn't know how to sew on leather yet, mm-hmm. and I didn't have the correct sewing machine to do that. Um, and then from totes came smaller bags, like I did a small crossbody that was called the mini sack. Um, one of the one of the things that came directly out of the laptop bags, which was a very good business decision because it turned out to be a very big part of my business for quite a few years was is the are the clutches and the clutches were just derived simply by shrinking the laptop envelope mm-hmm. and I remember I walked into a store one time to try to sell my laptop envelopes and they said yeah these are cute but why don't you make them a little smaller and just make them into handbags and I was like great idea I'll be back in two days <laughs> so I went home and made um, smaller versions and brought them back and told them that and so it was just you doing everything at the time yeah and was your like husband involved with the business or was he no. still doing his thing still a journalist yeah he's yeah. still a journalist yeah um, so what was one of the biggest challenges of opening that first store the first challenge was to figure out who was going to run the store and who was going to merchandise the store to make it look like me and my mm-hmm. vision my because I knew that I was actually running the business and had didn't have a lot of time to do that and I just I remember panicking one day just like what am I doing who's going to run the store and who's going to make this store look like me so the, my only answer to that was to ask my very good friend Greta Heikemer who had a job at the time and I, I just knew that she understood my company really well and knew me really well and knew the vision of the company. Um, was she a designer, like an architect? or a At the time, no. She was working at a showroom. So she was working in the fashion industry, um, selling wholesale. And uh, I said, Greta, would you ever consider quitting your job and come working for, work, working for me to run the store and merchandise the store? And she did it. She jumped and she um, has been with me ever since. Wow. And um, That's a good friend. Yeah, it's been a great um, partnership or collaboration. Mm-hmm. She's now our design director, so she, um, she and I designed the collection together. And she continues to merchandise the store. She does the first look, and then we have the store managers and the retail operations manager keep keep the aesthetic but mm-hmm. she does the first look i'm curious though at the time when you first opened your store where where was claire vivier the company at at the time like how were you i mean not to get into like sales figures or anything like that but like where were you at the, like how big was the company the, in 2012 when i opened my first store 
I was also consequently um, in talks with partners for them to buy a portion of the company. Um, Stephen Allen, who is a retailer from New York, um, introduced me to his partners at the time, which um, which was a company called Bedrock, run by um, someone named Tom Kartsotis and his CFO, Randy Kircho. And um, I was getting to the point in my company where it was really, I was exper experiencing a level of success that I dreamed of. Mm -hmm. It was really like dreams were coming true. Mm -hmm. Like I had reached over a million dollars in sales, which was huge to me at the mm -hmm. time because I started this company out of a room in my house. And, and um, I always knew, I always had a lot of confidence in this company and I always thought we could be a really big company. But, you know, getting to that point where you're seeing these sales figures yeah. and I had, you know, one bookkeeper and we're just it chugging along, we're cranking out. And um, Stephen introduced me to these partners and I we, we got along well. They're very... Um, not traditional partners and they think outside the box and they were um, amenable to my lack of, um, how do you say, was business it, was experience it to, Was it for growth purposes? Like what, what, what was the partnership for? Like why did, was it to grow the company like a strate like strategically or was it for another Yeah, reason? for me it was 100% strategic because I had never run a company before right. and I really wanted it to be successful and I had heard so many um, scary or depressing stories of designers who start companies but we are at the end of the day creative people and we don't run companies really we don't I I am not someone who has ever been comfortable looking at spreadsheets and um, doing QuickBooks and forecasting. And it's just, it's just not my strong point. Mm -hmm. And I feel like as an entrepreneur, you really have to know what you're strong at and what you're not strong at and get people to fill those needs. Because if you don't have that, you're not going to grow. So, um, the fact that I was introduced to these people and we got along well, and I've really liked their philosophy. I liked the idea that they were in it for the long run. And, um, I didn't have to write a business plan. You know, I didn't go to business school or anything. They just said, he just said, write me a one page email and tell me what you want to do with your company and tell me what the vision of it and where you see it growing and why you would like to have partners. And I did that. And that's basically all we needed. And, and, and Bedrock wasn't a, was they, or were they an investment firm or were they a manufacturing company? No, it's an investment firm. Okay, um, it's well, but it's called Bedrock Manufacturing. Um, so, do they like only invest in like companies that manufacture? Is that it? They invest in um, consumer products. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, for me, I really, I really liked Randy Kircho. He he was a CFO with Tom for many, many years, and the fact that I was going to be able to have someone oversee mm -hmm. the business side of it just really made a lot of sense to me and um we've been partners ever since and it's been working out great and now like you mentioned earlier you're, you're at seven stores was it easier to open two three four five six seven or was that still for you you know a challenge which by the way happened very quickly like every year you open yeah. up a new store right yeah. yeah no the each store got to be easier and easier there's there's challenges but um they're not the same challenges. Mm -hmm. I did, you know, with the first store, I was really, it really, I had right. never even thought about who was going to run the store or who mm -hmm, was going to make mm -hmm, it look mm -hmm. like 
the brand. Mm-hmm. Once we had that first store, we knew what the brand aesthetic was. We knew what we wanted the next stores to look like. And we knew where our market was. So, for example, the second store was in Nolita on Elizabeth Street. And that just made a ton of sense because we knew we had a, a lot of customers in New York City. And that was easy. I mean, it wasn't easy, but mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but it's been really successful. Looking back, you know, when you were first, you know, designing those laptop, you know, cases, did you ever envision that this is where you would be, you know, a decade later? I really wanted it to be where I would be. And I believed it was possible. So, yes. That's great. Because a lot of folks that we talk to, they, what they've done is they've just kind of started mm-hmm. and, you know, they ended up having success, but there wasn't always a clear vision from the beginning. You know, do you, do you feel like the vision that you had back then helped you get to where you are today and hopefully where you really want to be even, you know, further down the line? I think so. I think you should always, uh, no, I shouldn't say should cause there's no should. I think, <laughs> I think this is, it has definitely helped me to have had this belief in the, in the brand from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's definitely gotten us to be where we are today. So you have seven stores now. Yes. Uh, where do you see it? The brand, uh, going from here? I mean, whether it's, you know, growing the storefronts or adding more products? Like, is there is there a clear, like, path now? Or is it more so just, like, day by day seeing where it goes? Um, it's, not, it's not day by day because we're very intentional of everything we do. And I have a great team right now. This is, this is my first year with a president at the company. Mm-hmm. Um, in March of last year, I hired a woman named Molly Leonetti. And it's been really nice to have someone at her level as, as a partner in growing this company. Um, and we're very intentional of everything we do. We're not opening another store in 2018. The retail market is really kind of weird. And mm-hmm. more than that, I would say that we I discovered at seven stores with the size of team that we are, which is still relatively small, we've got 30 people working in, the, in this office and about 55 people with all the store employees. Um, we're still relatively mm-hmm. small. And as I really saw that how it taxed our um, in-house retail ops team to which just consists of one person, one and a half person, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really a lot for that one person to handle seven stores. So I really thought, unless we're going to be very intentional about um, growing retail only, mm-hmm. and and we decide to put money into that department of hiring more people to run those stores, uh, we really need to slow it down on growth and retail. And because the retail industry is weird right now, real estate's weird, the rents are really high, um, people are buying online, as we all right. know. It's not some. It's not our big priority to mm-hmm. open something in 2018 or looking at maybe the end of 19. But um, our e-commerce site is doing extremely well. And we are really focusing on how to grow that mm-hmm. um, consumer base. And I think we're doing a really great job with that. 
Um, besides that, we need to grow international. We have a lot of room to grow in our wholesale accounts, even domestically. We have um, been growing a lot with with Nordstrom this year, for mm -hmm. example, and we have a lot of room to grow with big uh, wholesale accounts. So I'm glad you brought up the topic of retail in LA because every time I drive down the streets now, left and right, you know, stores are closing down. Um, how has you know Claire V the company? been able to survive that but also recognize it and make a maybe transition might be the wrong word but make a stronger push towards the e-commerce market well i've always been extremely um conservative with um and i, I don't i don't know if conservative is the right word i think it's cognizant maybe yeah and i i think it's I don't think it's conservative. So what, I, what I'm getting at is I, I don't go into neighborhoods where the rents are extremely high. Mm -hmm. And I've always been very um, confident that our customer is going to come to us where we are. And my first priority when finding a location for a store is whether or not I like the location and whether or not it feels authentic mm -hmm. to the brand. Mm -hmm. So I don't need to go where the rent is the highest. I, I for example would never go to Melrose Place, for example. It's yeah. a, The rents are extremely high. Mm -hmm. Or, say, Rodeo Drive or right. something. I don't know what the right. rents are at Rodeo, mm -hmm. but, you know, streets that are, you know, Hills, have yeah. big names. That, because our customer is seeking us out. Right. If If people come into our stores because they just happen to, it's always a wonderful discovery for them. But I don't, I don't need to be on the, the beaten path. Mm-hmm. So that's been a savior for us because our rents are affordable mm -hmm. and our operation costs are are just doable. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think that so many brands just kill themselves by being, you know, outpricing themselves from the get-go. Yeah. Um, On the topic of, like, doing things with intent and just branding overall, like, especially for folks who may want to get into, you know, the fashion industry and designers and, and whatnot – what would you say makes Claire V the brand and the products unique compared to other uh, other brands that are in the similar space? Well, I think our design first and foremost is really good and I think it appeals to a wide mm -hmm. array of women from young women that teenagers to their moms mm -hmm. and to their aunts and to um, just a very wide range of economic status as well. So I, what we've tried to do is keep things kind of an affordable form of, of luxury because it feels special. And mm -hmm. how do you make something feel special? Well, you have to, number one, have a beautiful product to start with. You have to have something that people desire and then for me, it was really having a story behind it. And it's been really um, important for me to keep in contact with our customer. And I've been able to do that through our social media before it was the blog. And mm -hmm. now it's Instagram prim primarily, but also it's going to the in-store events and to have it, to going to our stores on the weekends and just meeting the customer and telling 
telling people who I am and telling people how I've started the company. And it always really resonates with people. I mean, look at your podcast. It's mm-hmm. really, people love to know that there's a story behind it. Right. And that's what, why you might have this podcast. Mm-hmm. That's, you want to hear people's story. And mm-hmm. it's been really important to the brand. And um, I think what that does is just make the brand extremely authentic. Mm-hmm. It never feels that we're presenting any product that doesn't, feel right mm-hmm. all, even all the collaborations we do like we did something with tom's this this year which is a brand that is a much lower price point than ours but it made sense for us because we made it make sense it's a los it's a los angeles company um we're friends with john whitlich who's the creative director and we didn't we don't do shoes and i was confident that we were able to we were going to be able to design mm-hmm. cute product that was going to look good in our stores and our customer would want and on top of that we are a very socially minded company as well and the fact that tom's always has a give back was very attractive to us Mm -hmm. and we were able to decide with them where the give back was going to be which we decided was going to be um the downtown women's center so to do to do something to help homelessness in los angeles I'm curious, um, you know, with with where the brand is and the company is at now with seven stores and I'm sure more to come, I know outside of work, you're obviously a wife, you're a mother. How do you balance all of this? Well, it's it's really hard to balance and I don't know that anyone really knows how to do it. I think... um, I guess we can get more specific. Like, do you have like a certain method that you it's like a time management type of thing where like, you know, you break out your day in a certain way or is it kind of just all over the place? Like how, what efforts do you make to kind of just cope with it and make it happen? Um, well, certain things can happen. Like I probably don't exercise as much as I would like to do because in the morning would really be, it is the only time that I can exercise. So, or, or in the weekends, which mm-hmm. I, when I do have time to do that, but I was going to say every morning I wake up, with my son when he goes to school so that I can spend that time with him. And then um, after work, I have a lot of work events that I have to go to, so I'll go to those, but I'll try to come home early to be with him. And then um, I think what is the most important thing in, in balancing work and and life is to have a partner that supports you and... Um, is able to really take some of the load off. And my husband, Thierry, has been a really great partner to me in the last couple of years because he, for the first couple, for the first, I don't know how many years of our partnership, our, I'm sorry, our couple, our mm-hmm. marriage, <laughs> um, he was really the primary bread earner of the family and he worked all the time and he traveled a lot. And then when my company started to take off and we kind of saw that there was some great momentum happening and I had to travel to New York often, he was able to kind of scale back his work. And I think he was very intentional about that so that someone could be home with our son and um, someone could also just be home to anchor the home, you know. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Which is a very tough thing to do, especially like when you're married to an entrepreneur. And, and if you're an entrepreneur yourself, if you're both entrepreneurs, it's even harder. But, yeah. you know, having that balance, you know, it sounds like you were able to figure that out, which is great. Yeah, we're doing the best we can. <laughs> <laughs> it's not perfect. I don't know anyone who's been able to figure it out exactly perfect i think we all do do the best we can mm-hmm. claire one thing i wanted to talk to you about you know that i'm genuinely curious about and you know it's definitely a topic and 
an issue that's been rather prevalent, unfortunately, uh, in the United States and, you know, I'm sure throughout the world as well. Um, And for purposes of, you know, whenever we release this podcast, I'll just say recently. Recently, we had, you know, learned about the, you know, passing of Kate Spade and, um, you know, shortly after that of Anthony Bourdain and, you know, both due to mental health. And there's been so many, of course, other instances of this. And, you know, I don't want to sound too dark, you know, in this episode, but it is a real issue that, you know, happens and people suffer from it. How have you been able to keep a, you know, positive, I guess, mental health or been able to, you know, work on that as a founder, as a mother, as a wife, as someone who's doing so much? How do you deal with that? Well, first of all, I think I would love to comment on Kate Spade because she has just recently passed this week. Mm-hmm. It's been a pretty intense week and mm-hmm. and I just would love to say how um just how sad I am at the at her passing mm-hmm. because she was such a an industry trailblazer. Um there's really not many other people that I can look to as mm-hmm. um as an icon in, in the handbag industry. And um, I knew her husband, Andy, and I had a great amount of respect for both of them because I think they had so much creativity and mm-hmm. they were very smart and they built a company and and uh, they did it, you know, the thing that we're all trying to do. They built the company, made it, made it huge. And, sold it. Yeah, and eventually sold it. And I'm not saying that we're all trying to sell our companies, but they, they were the... They lived, Epitome they lived of the success. dream. For, yeah, yeah, they did. They made the dream happen, yeah. and um, and I'm just it's so it's extremely sad to see what happened, mm-hmm. and um, I don't. Again, I had never met Kate, so I don't know what she was living through. But obviously, uh, through Andy's statements, he said he had she had been experiencing um, severe depression for the past couple of years. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I very fortunately have not experienced that in my life. Um, it seems like it's more and more in, in the press, and I think a lot of people are talking about it on mm-hmm. social media these days, and maybe people think that people are being, um, how do you say, when they're trying to exploit it a little bit on social media. I've yeah. seen people kind of say, oh, you shouldn't talk about that so much. And I think, well, why not? Like I don't think there's anything wrong with talking mm-hmm. about and I don't think people are trying to get popular by talking about no, it. No, I don't think so. Um I think that it's I think we're in a great period of time where people are acknowledging that it's just a fact. It's an illness that some people have and that they need to get help for it. Mm-hmm. Um fortunately I haven't I don't have mental illness in my family and I haven't experienced it myself. However, I do employ a lot of people, and there's a lot of emotions that come up, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of yeah. there's a lot of dealing with a lot of different illnesses and people. And it's a as a business owner, you really have to be extremely sensitive to people's emotions and feelings and illnesses. You don't know really if it's someone is chronically mm-hmm. ill or if they. Or not, but you, you just have to be extremely sensitive about mm-hmm. it. Yeah, after after Anthony Bourdain's passing, uh, you know, I was really thinking like, 
you know, going back to like high school, like I, the one of the main things I remember, and I wasn't the best student, but like I always remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which was like it's very directly correlated with like happiness and depression. Uh, in college, I took like a science of happiness class, and I can't help but think like you know, folks who almost seem like you know the the top of the pyramid is like self actualization, right? Like your love and belonging, your your shelter, everything is you're past that, and you're at a place where you're like enlightened almost where you're you're living for yourself but more though more though you're living for others like anthony Bourdain, for example traveled the world and you know was immersed in all these different cultures and met so many people and helped so many people um and then for him to to pass like that it's almost like you know you can't help but think especially as for founders like when you're working towards something and you have this huge vision in mind and you don't think about you know what it would be like when you're there it's kind. It's kind of like you need to make take the necessary steps while you're building the company, so you're not like sacrificing like your personal life and all these things. When you're when once you get to that point where you always want it to be, you haven't like looked back and like just completely just shattered your life. So it's. I mean, that was kind of like one mm-hmm. thing that really like resonated with me. I was like really thinking about that. So um, I don't know. If yeah, you it's definitely hard. I mean, it's we we work. As entrepreneurs, we work a lot. Our our work is our life. Yep. There's really no, especially if it's if the business has your name on it and it's kind of built on your image. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, I there's, I almost feel like I'm never not working. Um, fortunately, I really love what I do and I love my product. I love mm-hmm. all the people I work with, so that really helps. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I can imagine it must be extremely hard. I mean, especially if you're someone who eventually sells your business. I don't even, if you're not taking those steps to really enjoy your life and be comfortable with where you are every step of the way, when you stop doing what you're doing, you're going to be completely lost, Mm -hmm. it seems to me. Clear to end on a happier note, Um, you traveled in France and, you know, you worked, in, you know, you waited tables. I won't call it culinary. Mm. Um, what is your favorite wine? Uh, well, that's very easy. Um, <laughs> my husband is from the Loire Valley in France and we are big fans of red wine from the Loire Valley. So I wouldn't say that I have a favorite mm. wine. Just a region. There's a region. There's Chinon, Saumur, mm-hmm. Saint-Nicolas de Bourgogne. There's... Um, Mm, what else? There's Gamay. There's a lot of really great wines that come mm-hmm. out of this region. So that's that's an easy one. I got to check it out. Gotta yeah. Check it out. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, obviously the storytelling background um, is something that is not only admirable, but it also, I think, helped this story come together. And, you know, I think that our listeners are going to be able to really piece together everything that you talked about and whether it was your journey and whether it was, you know, the fearlessness of moving to France and all the topics that we discussed, you know, we really appreciate it. And, you know, we can't wait to see, you know, what Claire V, the brand, and what Claire Vivier, the person, uh, become in the future. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Claire. I really appreciate it. (laughs) 